0: It's January, the beginning of a new year, a time when we reflect on our past to inform our future. How fitting then to share with you a brand new podcast, Before Me, about a new mother finally taking the time to understand her own mother's journey from Cambodia to America. I'm Angela Messino, the executive producer of Resettled, and I'm really excited to share the first episode of the series with you. I'm a big fan of action movie origin stories. I love understanding the motivations of our favorite heroes, how they got their powers and why they choose to use them for good despite the evils they faced. But in real life, so few of us take the time to explore our own origin stories, especially with living relatives. Honestly, it can be scary or uncomfortable to ask those closest to us to relive difficult moments. But Lisa Fu dares to go there in this intimate, honest, and eye-opening refugee story shared between mother and daughter. I'm eager for you to listen and hope Lisa's bravery inspires you to have a conversation, to learn more about your own origin story. You can listen to the full series of Before Me wherever you listen to podcasts. Here's Episode 1, Firstborn. This episode contains descriptions of death during war, acts of genocide, and family separation. Thanks for listening.
1: Hi, Hi, Emma. Welcome. <laughs> oh, wow. She's very good size. She's beautiful. Yes. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Wow.
2: This was the first time my mom met my daughter, Acacia, five days after she was born. It was early October 2016, and my mom had just flown from New York to my home in Juneau, Alaska.
1: More beautiful than pictures. Isn't she? Photo, yeah. Can you see her? Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'll do another one.
0: Does she
1: look more like Milan or? Like oh, I think she definitely looked more like you.
2: I think it's yeah. the case for many grandparents, but my mom would transform with Acacia. She laughed differently, and she laughed a lot. I was convinced she was having more fun with Acacia than I was.
1: Look at her forehead. Look at that forehead. Everyone said that that's her daddy's forehead. <laughs>
0: But the but she's the, a half and half, yeah.
1: Half and half, <laughs> yeah. Isn't she cute? Yes, yeah, she's cute. Yes, she's
2: adorable. <laughs> Your first grandkid, first grandkid. It was amazing to see my mom act this way, but it was also mixed with a lot of stress for me. My mom is a small woman who might be easily overlooked but she loves starting up conversations with strangers. She can be brutally honest with restaurant waitstaff when they ask her how the food is, and she knows how to make an impression. This is what I wrote in my journal after our first full day together. Day one with mom makes me feel like it's going to be a long three weeks, but I also have to remind myself to be appreciative and enjoy the time and try not to argue with her. But we had epic fights, fights where we both shouted and screamed and made each other cry. The kind of fights where you just keep pushing and pushing, wanting to hurt the other. At one point, I even told her, maybe she should leave a week early, because I knew that would crush her. This sounds crazy now, but I resented her helping me telling me to nap when Acacia was sleeping, scolding me for lifting something heavy, offering to fold laundry. In my everyday life, I do fine without my mom's help. So I thought, why should this time be any different? I wasn't able to accept her assistance happily. Of course, she was a mother too. And in the middle of all of this, she told me what happened after she gave birth to her first baby in her home country of Cambodia.
1: I kind of moved to my mom just for a few months so she can take care of me. Because the Chinese tradition that within 100 days, you're not allowed to, to live, to do anything, to cook. You know, for woman it's a only luxurious time, only vacation
2: time that when you have the baby. Usually they give you a hundred days. <laughs> Luxurious? Vacation? Didn't she have to get up at all hours of the night? Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. I was uh, breastfeeding, I mean the same thing. The baby's hungry,
1: you have to feed. I changed her diaper. I don't think we have diaper before, so we just use the cloth. And my mom the one have to wash all the cloth, deal with the poops, you know. She so took care of my, all my laundry by hand. We didn't have a the machine then. That's a big thing for women, you know. They don't expect us to do laundry within that hundred days, and she cooks. She make, you know, she cook for me, you know. And the tradition I tell you, very spicy pork with a lot of peppercorn, teriyaki style. Add a little peppercorn. That's one one way. And another way is the uh, pork slice thin and stir fry with ginger and scallion. Well, we always eat that it much every single day because they believe that will
2: strengthen the baby's stomach, you know. She had tried to tell me about the pork, and I had brushed it off as crazy talk. But it was all important. She had been trying to tell me all along. This is likely obvious to everyone else, but my mom wasn't visiting me at one of the hardest times of my life to make it even harder. She wasn't offering to help because she thought I couldn't handle it or because she thought I was doing it wrong. She wasn't even there just to help. She was fulfilling a tradition. This is just what a Chinese mom does. She takes care of her daughter after she gives birth. This was a revelation to me. And afterward, I started accepting her help without resentment. I was able to nap, and appreciate waking up to her cooking in the kitchen. The sounds and smells of someone else making dinner all of a sudden became miraculous. It did feel luxurious, and by accepting her help, I was simply fulfilling my role as a Chinese daughter. I can't say the rest of the visit was argument-free, but there was a lot more room for patience and understanding. My whole life, I've grown up knowing there was so much I didn't know about my family's past. Not just cultural traditions, but things like, what did happen to my mom's first daughter? I remember writing a story when I was six or seven about meeting this sister on a magic carpet ride. I've always had a narrative about what came before me, but it was something I put together from bits and pieces that I'd overheard. At various points in my life, when I tried writing about it, I always got something wrong. My mom would issue the corrections and edits after the school essay had been turned in or the magazine story published. For instance, I didn't know I was ethnically Chinese until I was 20 years old. Up until then, I thought I was also part Cambodian or Vietnamese, since these were the countries I heard most about growing up. I never asked my mom the most basic questions. But us being in the same location together for three weeks was my opportunity to finally do just that. Well, you know, just ask you some questions about your life. My life, oh my God, it's a long story. (laughs) I'm Lisa Fu, and you're listening to Before Me, the five-part story that follows my mom's journey from Cambodia to America, and the long-overdue conversation that helped us connect over our family's history. In the years before my mom had her first child, her life was filled with uncertainty. She lived in Kampot, in the southern part of the country, When she was a teenager, the Vietnam War was going on next door, seeping into Cambodia. In 1969, the U.S. began bombing Cambodia in hopes of destroying Vietnamese communist camps and supply bases. Attacks are being launched this week to clean out major enemy sanctuaries on the Cambodian-Vietnam border. This is the decision I have made. At the same time, Cambodia was having its own war between the Cambodian Republic and the domestic communist group called the Khmer Rouge. In the midst of all this, my mom got married. She was 17, my dad Kisong was 26. Both my mom and dad are Chinese and come from families who immigrated to Cambodia. After getting married, my mom immediately moved in with his family And soon after, they had their first child. Her name was Ali.
1: Your father, he had nothing to do with the baby. He did not wake up at night. He did not know how to change diapers. You know, it's not part of the man's responsibility
2: in that Chinese culture. When they had their first kid, my mom and Kisong still lived in Kampot. By the way, I didn't grow up with my dad, so I sometimes refer to him as Kisong. He fixed watches and clocks for a living, and my mom ran a small business at the market, selling stuff like candy and laundry detergent. My parents and Ali lived with Kisong's parents and his brother's family. Kisong's brother was Kijok, and Kijok had six children. Living with extended family, growing up with grandparents, uncles, aunts and cousins, that was the norm. My mom said Ali was a lovable baby. She even won the affection of Kisung's father, who normally didn't care for girls. He didn't like his own daughter and didn't pay attention to his other granddaughters.
1: However, he likes my, my daughter very much, yeah. So he actually come to take a peek of her when she sleep and he, oh, he stare at her, you know. He just love her. <laughs> very unusual. <laughs> you don't know why? I don't know why, but, but she's, so, she's so easy. She's very easy baby. She's so cute. She is so cute.
2: <laughs> Life was relatively normal. Normal for wartime, that is. My mom said bombings had been going on for a few years already. So even though my mom and her family were surrounded by war, it was still manageable. But that changed quickly. By 1974, Cambodia's civil war had more than doubled in intensity. The Khmer Rouge had gained control of most of the countryside. And their leader Pol Pot was terrorizing the cities, including where my family lived. It was becoming more and more apparent that in order to stay safe, they'd have to leave. We were sitting in the the, the living room, talking, discussing
1: when we're going to escape, when we're going to leave the house. And there's a a bomb dropped on the street and a thousand hundred fragments went into the house. And one fragment just came right to here, right here. A piece of shrapnel landed right next to my mom. When we heard the bomb, we all leaned down to the floor. I was with your your sister, holding your sister, leaning down. And all of a sudden, I feel wet. I got wet. I wet and then I smelled blood. I, I knew somebody died.
2: Ali was all right. But the shrapnel had hit Kijok, my dad's brother, through the temple. Oh, my God.
1: All the brain, all the blood, just the whole entire body's blood just comes here, soak the living room, and of course we all sob, and we you know there's a dead in the house now. Now everybody takes serious. After we uh, did his funeral, and that's the time that we decided
2: to take the whole family leave leave the land. What killed Ki my mom's brother-in-law, my uncle? was a Khmer Rouge rocket. The Khmer Rouge were using rockets more and more in the early to mid-70s. They would fire the rockets into the city without having a specific target, and the shrapnel would kill and injure people. The number of casualties per rocket was small, but it caused terror and chaos. After my uncle was killed, my mom, Ali, Kyesung and his parents left their home in Kempat, took a boat, and fled toward the Vietnam border. When
1: we lived in the border, we, we did not have a house. We lived with someone we know, and oh my God, the water was filthy, everything was filthy, nasty living. Very, 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 very bad. Then the grandfather, Song's father, he was, he's old and he's so used to his own place. He said, you know what? I cannot live in a place like this, you know? It's too complicated. So he he insists to
2: go back. So grandmother said, you know what?
1: I think I'm going to bring your little one back
2: home. At that point, they'd been living along the border for a few months. My mom says violence in Kempat had quieted down. So my dad's parents took Ali back home while my parents got their bearings at the border.
1: At that time, nobody know what the future will bring and nobody know what the, the road in front of us is. It was so misty. Nobody knows. And we came to the Cambodia border just for temporary. That, that was the plan until stop stopped bombing. They still bombed, but the
2: was was a little safer. After my grandparents and Ollie left my mom and dad moved into a different house, which they converted into a business during the day and sold clothes out of. Kisong went back and forth to Kampot a couple of times to bring my grandparents' money and baby formula. My mom made the journey once, to help out and spend time with Ali. Yeah. Do you remember what she was wearing when you lost her?
1: Yeah, she was wearing... Um... I must try to remember what was wearing. Uh, my the favorite color I gave her was a little pinkish, a pinkish shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's so cute. You know, when I when I went out, she always sit in the door. Yeah and a half, she sit in the door to wait for me to come home. Too bad, grandfather, grandmother they did not want to stay with us. Grandfather was very difficult. Otherwise, otherwise, we we will have them stay. You know, but they did not want to stay. But we we are not safe either. It's a Cambodian border, and that's where the Khmer Rouge live. They
2: can come by bicycle. They can slaughter everybody. You know. You can probably hear that my mom's trying to explain why they made the decisions they did. Why they let Kisong's parents take Ali. But you have to realize there was no right or wrong thing to do. There was no playbook for war. My parents remained in that house for as long as they could. The reason we, we stay there because we're hoping to see your
1: sister. We're hoping she'll come one day. We were hoping that somebody would take her out. Somebody would bring grandmother and her out.
2: Every single day, every single day, we are hoping to see her. The plan was for everybody to be together again eventually. But my mom and dad were forced to leave the border. During one of Kisong's visits to Kampat, Khmer Rouge soldiers came to the area. My mom was all alone, and she heard gunshots. She called it a slaughtering. They know you're not part of them. They just shot people gun and they
1: kill people. You know, even the civilians, so what they kill you because they know you're not, not one of them. And they also want the territory. You know, they kill you so you get scared so you leave. Your father wasn't with me, but oh my god. Now I have to take myself and whatever I can take in bicycle and I move myself toward Vietnam. He was lucky somehow. He, he took the boat and then get himself to Vietnam. And that time, that was the end of our, our resident, our
2: business in that border. Once my parents settled in Vietnam, they tried to go back to Kampat to get Ali and Song's parents and bring them over the border. But you know what? Thing happened so fast. Boom, boom, boom.
1: The border was blockaded. Yeah, we could not go back. Could not go back. And the next thing they know, the Khmer Rouge gather all the remain people in the city. No matter where you are, they gather you and for you into the countryside. You heard about it, right? And turn all, everybody, turn them to farmers.
2: What my mom is referring to is April 17th, 1975 when the Khmer Rouge took over Phnom Penh and started evacuating all the cities. The regime had won the civil war and would rule over Cambodia for four years. The goal of Pol Pot, the leader of the Khmer Rouge, was to institute the ultimate totalitarian system enforced by violence and mass killing. Historians and researchers estimate that they killed between 1.7 and 3 million people or close to a quarter of the country's population. The idea was to develop Cambodia on an agricultural base. The Khmer Rouge forced people from the cities into the countryside and into labor camps where they died of starvation and illness. Others were brutally murdered. As these evacuations were taking place in 1975, my dad's parents left Kampot and walked to the town of Tukmia, where my grandmother is originally from. They were still taking care of Ali, along with my grandmother's relatives. Then my grandmother got really sick.
1: So she knows she knows she's know she going to die. So she uh, gave your sister. she hand your sister to her nephew and wife, the couple didn't have children. And she said, you know what, i I give you Kisong's daughter. Please take care of her.
0: No.
1: (laughs) She said, one day, she said, take care of her, one day when you see the parent, you give her
2: back to her parents. My dad's cousins cared for Ali for more than three years, and my mom says they loved her. But one day, Khmer Rouge soldiers came to their house with a list. On the list were the couple's parents, who'd been landlords. The couple themselves were not on the list. Neither was Ali. City people, educated people, former business leaders, they were all being targeted by the Khmer Rouge as traitors, but the soldier said the people on the list would simply be relocated. My mom told me about all of this while holding my daughter, Acacia, in her arms. So
1: the couple who had your sister say, oh, the parents are older now. We have to go where they're going. We like to go with them. He didn't know. So he decided to go with them. So they add them on the list and your sister also on the list and then they killed them all. It kept, oh, shut. She was seven years old, and people who came out, who I met, who I've known her, to live with her, they said she was the, the oh, nicest little girl. So sad. Oh, it took me so long to be able to repeat the story
0: mm <sighs>
2: When Vietnamese soldiers defeated the Khmer Rouge in January 1979, many who survived left Cambodia as soon as they could. My mom says people who had known Ali found her in Vietnam to tell her what happened. Up until then, my mom had always held on to hope that she'd see her firstborn again. When I was 20, my mom and I went to Paris and visited relatives who lived there. I remember walking around the Eiffel Tower. My mom was speaking to one of our relatives in a language I didn't understand. Besides English, my mom speaks at least five other languages. So at one point, she turned to me and said, he knew your oldest sister and says she was very kind. You would have liked her. She said this casually and then started talking to our relative again I didn't ask her to tell me more. So much of my life was like this, hearing small snippets of a long, complicated story. But now I know who that man was. He was one of my dad's cousins. His brother was the one who took Ali in. I probably questioned him a little bit here and there, you know, about
1: what he know. But he and his parents separate too. So they went together. So he wouldn't know that much. All he knew, they were killed. And, you know, all he knew that his brother adopted my my daughter, and they were killed together.
2: He had met her, though, so what did he say about her?
1: She's so cute. Oh, she's... She is so adorable. Not only has got very good nature, when a kid has good nature like this, people like them.
2: Do you think about her often?
1: Of course. Of course, I think of her often, you know. I think of Ali a lot, you know. Life move on, but I still think of her. She'll never forget your baby, never.
0: On
2: the next episode of Before Me, my mom recounts the harrowing years she spent fleeing the Khmer Rouge. So, Kisum quickly told me that uh,
1: bring the baby and hide under the bed. Don't get out no matter what.
2: This episode was written and produced by me. Our editor is Julia Shu. Fact check by Harsha Nahata and Tiffany Bowie. Production management and sound design by James Boo, and additional help from Kathy Irway. Original theme music by Avery Stewart. Audio engineering by Dave Waldron and Timothy Lou Lee. Thanks to Ben Kiernan for speaking with me about the historical context of what my family experienced. And of course, special thanks to my mom. If you want to record an oral history interview with someone you love, even if you've never tried it before, check out selfevidentshow.com history where you'll find a free toolkit to help you take the next step. Before Me is a self-evident media production. Our executive producers are James Boo, Ken Akeda, and me. The show also receives support from the Alderworks Alaska Writers and Artists Retreat and the Juno Arts and Humanities Council. I'm Lisa Fu. Thanks
0: for listening.